for coming, dreaming, wearing their pajamas and drinking hot chocolate. They look way too comfortable. Some have actually uh, gotten a little bit more committed and they're wearing their sweatpants. So that's a movement in the right direction. But eventually you'll, you'll be coming back to church so you have to get ready for some real Sunday clothes. This is February, so uh, if I remember correctly, sometime this month it's going to be Valentine's Day. And uh, I mean, in a pandemic, it's really hard to tell one day from another. My wife always gives me about a week's grace if I forget, you know, like, as long as it's approximate, you know, that's, that's usually good enough. So guys, just be aware that uh, sometime this month, Valentine's Day is coming, and if you're looking for ideas, there's some uh, reasonably priced items at the dollar store that make really good gifts. But let's set that aside, and uh, because it's, uh, this is heart month, so that's also kind of in the theme of love. So we're going to talk about love this morning as we look at uh, Micah chapter 6. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house. There's just such a longing within us to gather together, to come before you, and to uh, just worship you. Because there is nothing else in this world that we experience in this country that does that. There's nothing else. All that we've experienced this week is kind of ignoring you. It's uh, focusing on the thoughts and ideas of, of man, of people, politicians, etc., doctors. But we come here acknowledging that... Uh, you are real, and your words are the ones that matter. So we ask that you would speak to us now, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A special welcome to Pastor Gary. I'm assuming that's you. I can only see part of your... Doesn't he look younger than ever? Like, look at him. He looks amazing. Well, in... Uh, Back in the year 2000, Hollywood released a movie with a most ambitious title. What do women want? Are you kidding? That's the question that has puzzled men for thousands of years. I mean, we're not mind readers. What do women want? Well, now there's an entire TV network that is addressing this very issue. And I think to a certain extent, they've answered the question successfully. If you want to know what women want, they will tell you on HGTV. And from what I can tell, it's, it's black granite countertops as far as the eye can see, with a double sink about every six feet. It's a walk-in closet as big as a two-car garage. It's a fridge the size of a meat locker. And it's a remote control that changes the paint colors on the walls. All for around 200,000. On HGTV, the husband usually doesn't have much of an opinion. His role is very simple. Yes, dear, if you really want that closet, 
I guess I can paddle a raft across an alligator-infested swamp to go to work. What do women want? It remains a mystery. Well, there's an, actually an even greater mystery. What does God want? Trying to answer that question has sent people off in so many different directions and created how many denominations? What does God want? Look at the religions of the world. It's very confusing. There's so much ritual and pageantry, the costumes, the choreography, the uh, pomp and circumstance, the sound and fury. What does it all signify? Is this what God wants? Now, the nation of Israel really tried hard to please God and to answer that question. They put so much effort into their religion. I mean, they had the Sabbath and the Passover, the feasts and the festivals, the temple, the prayers, the sacrifices, the processions, the offerings. They fasted so much it made them furious. And yet, God was not impressed. What does he want? Well, I'm glad you asked that because the answer is in Micah chapter 6. Beginning at verse 6, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Now this guy is serious. He's willing to offer thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil. What does it take to please God? Do I have to offer my firstborn son? What does God want? Well, the answer is in the next verse. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God wants. And so if that's the correct answer to the mystery of the ages, it's worth spending some time considering what this means. Because if I don't have to exhaust myself trying to butcher a thousand rams, then I have a lot of spare time to focus on these priorities. And they will profoundly change my lifestyle. Last week we were looking at the healthy habit of acting justly, which means you don't treat anyone as your inferior. You treat others as equal. You love your neighbor as you love yourself. Today, we're going to concentrate on mercy. And not just as something that we practice on special occasions. You get some mercy, and you get some mercy. Thanks for coming, now get out of here. No, it says we are to love mercy. That's our goal. And so with uh, this being Valentine's Month, we're going to talk about love. Not primarily about who you love, but how you love. In all the things you love, does mercy come into that? Do you love mercy? Or is it even necessary to go that far? Isn't it enough just to be merciful? 
Matthew 5, 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Isn't that enough just to show mercy every now and then? Do we actually have to love it? See, the problem for us is that like justice, mercy is foreign to our fallen human nature. It's not a basic instinct. It's not a, not a natural reflex. And it's not even that interesting. Most of Hollywood's action blockbusters are about revenge, not mercy. Revenge seems to be a lot more exciting. The next James Bond movie is not entitled License to be Merciful. There's no soap opera called The Bold and the Merciful. In fact, mercy represents a conflict of interests. We touched on this last week when we talked about the theory of evolution, which decrees that we are motivated by self-interest. The highest virtue in Darwinism is selfishness because survival is what's important. It's survival of the fittest. And in that worldview, the cream rises to the top, the rich get richer, and all are created equal, but some are more equal than others. So in Darwinianism, mercy has no evolutionary benefit. It's counterproductive. So where did this idea even come from? And why are all the frontline healthcare workers risking their lives for the sake of others, for the weak and the sick? It's not just for money. That's not proper evolutionary behavior. Where did the idea of mercy originate? If you study the ruins of ancient civilizations, you can't help but notice how violent life was back in the day. Their monuments and mosaics depict bloody battles. There's brutality and savagery and torture. It was the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. But then, there was a divine intervention. God chose a citizen from the great city of Ur of the Chaldeans. And his name was Abraham. And God called him out of that pagan culture to live a separated life in the rural countryside of Canaan. And of course, God's plan was to bless Abraham and his descendants and through them that his blessings would impact the world. Now, part of Abraham's extended family was his nephew Lot, who eventually got tired of that quarantine and decided to move his wife and their daughters to an urban setting where they could have a nice house on a big lot with a walk-in closet the size of a double-humped camel garage. So Lot left Abraham up in the hills and he moved down to the Dead Sea, the lowest point on the earth's surface, into the city of Sodom, Unfortunately, his timing could not have been worse. While Sodom had appealing amenities like large marketplaces for shopping, spacious amphitheaters for entertainment, it was actually in, a, in the terminal stages of moral decay and cultural rot. Sexual, gangs of sexual predators would roam the streets of Sodom every night looking for victims. 
So God, in his divine justice, issued a demolition order against Sin City because they were like a fast-spreading malignant cancer. It was time for some radical, radical radiation treatment in the form of fire and brimstone. But what about Lot? Well, in response to Abraham's prayer, God sent in a search and rescue team. And in Genesis 19:16, it says, The men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. This is the first time in the NIV Bible, at least, that we find the word mercy. God, in his mercy, delivered Lot from the destruction of Sodom. And it wasn't because Lot deserved it. Because by then his family was so contaminated by evil. Yet God was merciful to him. You see, in that terrible time, Sodom experienced God's justice. Those evil people got what they deserved. But Lot got what he didn't deserve. He was treated with mercy. Because mercy raises the ante on justice. To act justly means to treat people as our equal, to give them access to the inheritance and the opportunities that they deserve. But mercy treats people better than they deserve to be treated. That's why David prays this in Psalm 25, verses 6 and 7. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. God, David says, God, don't give me what I deserve. Show me mercy. If God only dispensed justice, if that's as far as he was willing to go, there'd be no hope for sinners like us. We'd be doomed. But God is willing to go far beyond justice. He's willing to offer us mercy. And not just on special occasions, like some of the major religious holidays, like Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Toyotathon. In Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah, in the middle of the destruction of Jerusalem, made an incredible discovery. Lamentations 3.22, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The King James Version translate that, translates that to say that God's mercies are new every morning. Compassion, mercy, love, those are the, it's the same idea. Because mercy is actually what changes love from a noun to a verb. When, when you look at the word love as a noun, it just kind of sits there. It's, it's very impressive, but it, it's not doing anything. It needs to become a verb. It needs to become an action word. And mercy takes the word love and puts it into action. Mercy is love in action. It's compassion with a contract. It's the workflow of grace. God's mercies are new every morning. He is actively involved in taking his love and making it active and at work in your life and in the world. 
Now, if that happens every morning, what does that mean? Well, it means that this is one of God's habits. In fact, you get the impression that God doesn't offer mercy reluctantly. Yeah, okay, fine, now get out of here. You get the impression that God actually loves being merciful. He loves any opportunity that we give him to be merciful. In Micah chapter 7, verse 18, Who is a God like you, who pardons and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay, stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. God delights to show mercy. And this was so radical because the false gods of all the other nations were gloomy and vengeful and harsh. They were indifferent to suffering. They were intolerant of failure. But this God of Israel loved mercy. He delighted in mercy. And it's not like raindrops on roses or whiskers on kittens. It's not just one of his favorite things. I think this is his absolute most favorite thing because mercy puts love into action. And mercy gives us the greatest opportunity in all of life to be forgiven and to have the hope of heaven through Jesus Christ. And so God will set aside managing the cosmic expanse of the universe if he has the opportunity to be merciful to you. You know, there's a lot of people I would like to be merciful towards, but I haven't had the opportunity yet. There's a, there's a barrier there. There's excuses. There's, it just doesn't happen. I would love that opportunity. God feels that even more, he would love to have more opportunity to be merciful. In fact, he loves mercy so much that God sacrificed everything. Not a thousand rams, not 10,000 rivers of oil, but his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for your sins so that you could experience mercy and be forgiven. You didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve that, but God did it anyway because he likes being merciful. No, he doesn't like being merciful. He loves being merciful, especially to you. So it might be time for a great reset. Because if you think that God is watching you with a critical eye, waiting for an opportunity to pounce, if you see God as kind of a Revenue Canada auditor or the inspector for quality control, then it's time to reset your faith. Because we are not like the gymnasts, gymnasts at the Olympic Games where there's a panel of judges critically analyzing every maneuver. That would make life unbearable because I can't remember the last time I stuck the landing. It's a heavy burden to live under the shadow of someone's judgment. Jacques Plant, the legendary goalie of the Montreal Canadiens, asked a reporter, how would you like a job where if you make a mistake, a big red light goes on and 18,000 people boo? You know, sometimes our homes can become like that. 
Every infraction is immediately called out. And some days you spend half your time in the penalty box. That's what the Pharisees did. They despised the common rabble, their spiritual inferiors who bumbled and stumbled through the mistakes and made mistakes through the most basic religious disciplines. They didn't have any compassion on the weary and the burdened. Their motto was, show no mercy. That's why Jesus, in Matthew 9, 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. God loves to show mercy. That's why in his presence, we can feel safe and secure. In his presence, we know there is no condemnation because we are in Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation. It doesn't say for those who have a religion or for those who are sincere because God's mercy is available very specifically only in Christ because God's offer of forgiveness becomes null and void unless we accept that gift unless we repent and confess our sins and forsake our sins and receive Jesus. That's when the offer of mercy becomes real, becomes ours, becomes our inheritance and our possession. Only then is a transaction complete and we have closure. I have lived decades of my life without any condemnation because of what I did So many years ago, I am in Christ. There's no condemnation. God loves mercy. That's why he's eager to forgive and also to forget. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness And I will remember their sins no more. I have trouble with that. I I can forgive, but it's so much harder to forget. Well, God loves to forget as much as he loves to forgive. In fact, there's no reason why he should remember them. Because remembering them only creates problems. He gets rid of that stuff so he can be totally reconciled to us. But for our sake, remembering someone's faults has its advantages. You can save it as equity for a more opportune time when you may need some leverage to put them in their place. Oh yeah? You think I'm being selfish? Well, let me remind you. Remembering someone's failures is like collateral. It's like a security deposit in case they do it again. But God isn't like that. When he forgives, he forgets. And he loves to forget. And through Jesus Christ, that's why we are justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. David says, remember not the sins of my youth. God through his mercy, gives me the permission to be the person I could have been if I hadn't committed those sins. The good news is the old is gone. The new has come. So, if God loves mercy, 
then it's logical to say he also loves it when we are merciful, when we treat others the way he treats us. And everybody needs mercy. Everyone in your family needs mercy. They need to be treated better than they deserve. It's not an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth because if you do that, there's going to be a lot of dental bills and you're going to be going to your optometrists every other month. No, everyone in your family needs mercy. Everyone here this morning, the people sitting around you, beside you, they need mercy. Everyone needs it. Think of, think of Simon Peter, that stumbling, bumbling disciple who had so much trouble sticking the landing. Peter may have been well-intentioned, but he was a repeat offender. He kept putting his foot in his mouth. In fact, at night when the other disciples were flossing, Peter was trying to pry the broken pieces of toenail from between his teeth. How, do you th how long do you think Peter would have lasted if Jesus hadn't shown him mercy? Can you imagine Simon Peter working in middle management in a typical cannibalistic professional organization? They would have eaten him alive. He would never have made it. And yet, this was the guy. He was the one who became the leader of the New Testament church. How did that happen? Well, it happened through the Holy Spirit and a lot of mercy along the way. As David says in Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. All the days because his mercies are new every morning. Anybody who sets out to follow the Lord from the green pastures all the way through the shadowlands needs massive doses of mercy along the way. And that's where you come in. So do you, need so do you know somebody who needs mercy more than criticism? Do you know somebody who is struggling with life, struggling with their faith? What do they need? Well, they need mercy. Do you know someone who's going astray? Maybe they've given up on God. They've rejected the church. What do people like that need? They need mercy. When I rejected the church, I got a lot of uh, criticism. I got a lot of warnings, but that didn't help me one bit. But there was one man who gave me mercy. With tears in his eyes, he pleaded with me and reminded me of God's love. And I never forgot that. That merciful act helped me find my way back to church. People like that need large doses of mercy. Fortunately, in the kingdom... Mercy is not like the vaccine. There are no shortages. And there should be no distribution problem, especially when there's people like you who dispense God's grace so freely. In fact, let's raise the ante. Think of the one person who's hurt you the most. Whenever that name is brought up, it raises your blood pressure. Boy, you know exactly what they deserve. And maybe you've prayed, come on, God, get them. 
But there's a downside because holding a grudge is an expensive and exhausting proposition. Now, I like it when people get what they deserve, except that mercy means giving them what they don't deserve, maybe the opposite of what they deserve. Of course, they still have to accept it. There is no reconciliation without true repentance. But after that, we offer mercy. And this is a radical, counter-evolutionary behavior. Mercy is loving people you don't like. Now, who would do that? Well, God, and now it's your turn. So if our mercy is restricted, if it's everybody but him, anybody but her, then going forward in our lives, we will show mercy to many, but we will never learn to love mercy. We can't learn to love mercy until we offer it to the last person we will ever forgive. Because mercy challenges us to love people at their very worst. Just like Jesus did. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We learn to love mercy because we remember how much God has given us, how much God has forgiven us. And we daily receive his new mercies every morning. I love the fact that God has been merciful to me. I experienced that when I was in my early 20s. And I've never gotten over it. To this day, I'm blown away that God could forgive my sins. I just have never gotten over that. I love the fact that God has been merciful to me. Now the challenge is I have got to learn how to love mercy in the way I treat others so that I can treat them the way God has treated me. We have to pull out the stops. No more restrictions until this becomes habit forming. So the question is, what if your mercies were new every morning, even when you didn't feel like it? Is that possible? I think it's kind of like food. Any foodies here? Anyone like food? I think Ron has been fasting this whole pandemic. He's looked like half the man he used to be. Does he ever look good? Wow. But we like food, and we all have different favorites. Rouladen, for example, is a very popular German dish. But I couldn't eat it every day. For me, maybe once a year, that's enough. You have to kind of pace yourself with that. A lot of people like uh, spaghetti with tomato sauce or, or lasagna. How often could I handle something like that? Well, uh, if you offered me some, make it on the first Monday after the second Wednesday or the day after two weeks before the last Sunday of the month. And I'd take it and I'd eliminate the middleman and put it right in the black bin. That's the best tomato sauce I've ever not eaten. But let's get positive. I like A&W matzah burgers. No tomato, substitute mayo for the matzah sauce. Oh, that's a good burger. I like matzah burgers. But I can't eat them every day 
maybe once every two or three weeks would be enough. Now, what I like way more than that is my wife's Wiener Schnitzel. Man, I could eat that every week, couple of times a week. I just love that Wiener Schnitzel. But there's <clears throat> something I love even more, and that is pizza. Oh, my goodness. Pizza. Oh, my mother-in-law makes this great deep dish ham and pineapple. Edie has all kinds of great pizza recipes. Domino's has this thick crust pizza with garlic parmesan sauce, bacon crumble, and pineapple. I could eat that eight days a week. Now, I'm not allowed because I would lose points. There'd be points deducted. You see, I don't like pizza. I love pizza. That's been number one since 1967 when I had my first medium salami and parmesan at Tom's House of Pizza. It was love at first bite. I cannot believe they don't serve pizza at wedding receptions. It's the ultimate in fine dining. Instead, they serve you this rubber chicken. You see, when it comes to food, there's some we like, and then there's some we really like, and then there's some we love. And you know when you've crossed that line. So the challenge for us is not to like being merciful or to really like being merciful. The challenge is to love being merciful. And mercy is not like pizza because it's more of an acquired taste. It's not love at first sight. You have to work at it. It's kind of like a marriage. If you want a loving marriage, then you have to treat your spouse with love, especially when you don't feel like it. Especially when they don't deserve it. You don't wait for your feelings to motivate your actions. You act in love and eventually your feelings will join the party. It's kind of like the elder brother. You know, there's this party going on. They killed a fatted calf. The son has come home. They're celebrating. There's the best food that they've ever had. And the elder brother is just, he does just not feel like going in there. He doesn't deserve it. And so he's feeling sorry for himself and he's staying outside. But how long do you think that would have lasted? I mean, you're smelling the aroma of that feast and you're sitting here feeling sorry for yourself? How long before you, oh, I'm going to go in there. I got, I got to get involved. They might have Rolladen in there. My goodness, I got to get into that. You see, your feelings may not feel like it, but eventually, if you keep acting in mercy, your feelings can't resist and they will also join the party. So, it's 2021 now. And the good news is that God does not require you to offer him thousands of rams. That would be so time-consuming, hurting all those sheep, feeding them, shearing them, butchering them. It would be a more than a full-time job. You'd have to hire employees. But you don't have to do that. It's not necessary. That's not what God wants. So what are you going to do with all the time you have to spare? Well, 
what you could do is practice the healthy habit of mercy. Serve it fresh every morning, especially to those who don't deserve it, and especially when you don't feel like it. Look for opportunities to offer mercy every day until you learn to love it, because eventually your feelings will also join the party. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That sounds pretty exciting. That sounds like uh, something that we could make as our life goal. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for not only clearly spelling out the kind of life we are to live, but you have demonstrated that for us so vividly and so powerfully. You have shown us mercy. And we just absolutely love the mercy that we have received from you. We're just so totally um, impressed by how you have been able to be merciful to sinners like us. We love the fact that you've been merciful to us. And now, Lord, we want to accept the challenge of also being merciful to others in the same way. We want to learn how to love mercy. And it's for your honor and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.